of the Scott with Brian podcast. We are thrilled today uh, to be joined by a man who definitely needs no introduction, but he's been the ESPN baseball analyst uh, since 1998, basically. When I was seven years old, he's the author of a whole bunch of terrific baseball books, uh, Baseball Tonight and Sports Center analyst, Tim Kirchner. Thank you very much, Tim, for joining us today. How are you? Um, well, Brian, good to hear from you. You too. Yeah. For, for anybody who doesn't know, I... I think you might actually be the most generous person in the entire world with your time. Um, back in high school, <laughs> I worked for a, a nonprofit baseball team in Bethesda, Maryland, around where we're both from. And you were kind enough not only to join us for a game every single season. We even did a bobblehead night of you. But you also joined us as a special guest for our fundraiser auction. And you agreed to donate a dinner with you to be auctioned off. And then there was so much interest in the dinner with you that on the spot, you agreed to do two dinners, and I was just always struck with how generous you were and how, you know, I just thought anyone who doesn't know that side of you should get to hear that. So just really appreciate you coming on again. Well, that's my pleasure. I'm looking right at that bobblehead, which, by the way, is the only one ever actual size, which is really great. <laughs> I was going to ask if you still have that somewhere. I'm glad. Yeah, it's, it's stashed away. Uh, <laughs> no, I, it's really fun to have one of those. Thanks very much for that uh, many years ago. Of course, yeah. No, so, uh, you know, on top of all your generosity with your time, uh, you know, helping young kids try to get into baseball or journalism, of course, you do have a day job as pretty much ESPN's go-to baseball guy. So my next logical question kind of is, uh, you know, do you sleep? Uh, how do you find a way to, to do all this with your time? And, uh, you know, what's the secret? <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't sleep much, unfortunately, uh, but I'm doing something that I really love to do. So working on very little sleep when you're going to baseball games for a living, it's not that difficult. Uh, you know, it, it requires a lot of time and a lot of effort, and a lot of work, but I'm not exactly overexerting myself physically beyond a few late night flights. So, uh, there's plenty of time in the day as long as you're interested in what you're doing. And I still love every part of baseball, whether it's in person, especially on television, talking about it, reading about it, whatever it is, count me in. <laughs> and I know uh, I know, last week in particular with the trade deadline certainly took a, a lot out of you. I was just curious, in general, your thoughts on the, uh, the new trade deadline. I know they tried this year and uh, how that if that changed anything for you, if it made it any tougher, uh, what your general opinion on that was? Well, I'm always glad when it's over. I hate to put it that way because it's a very exciting time, but it's also a time when most of journalism gets suspended and uh, we deal with speculation and rumors and things that aren't quite true, and I'm not real comfortable with that. I enjoy dealing with the facts of the case. And uh, I enjoyed this trade deadline. I thought it was interesting. And uh, I think it served a purpose. Uh, they'll examine it next year, Major League Baseball will, to see if it's better to move it back to August the 15th, let's say. But I think there was some pressure on some teams to do something, uh, knowing if you don't acquire the player by July 31st, it's not eligible in October. So that added a sense of urgency to it, but uh, there still weren't as many big deals as I thought there were going to be. 
for sure. And I, I know you could talk certainly for days about baseball, but Scout with Brian, of course, is a is a basketball podcast. And I, I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on to talk about something you probably don't get to discuss a whole lot. But if I remember correctly, you are a pretty big uh, basketball fan. Is that right? Yes, I love basketball. I love basketball at all levels. I always have. I still love to watch NBA games. I love college games. I'll, I can watch five high school games in a row if you let me. Uh, I just thoroughly enjoy the game. I've always loved it. Not as much as I love baseball, but it's a it's a pretty close second. And uh, I've always tried to keep out of my business life, meaning baseball is my business life, and I like to keep basketball just as a hobby. So when I sit and watch, I don't have to worry, hey, I got to go work tomorrow on this. I like just to watch it as a fan, and that uh, that makes it even more fun. Right. And and you attended, uh, I know, Walter Johnson High School in Bethesda, Maryland, and uh, you did play both baseball and basketball, right? Uh, so I'm guessing even back then you you still would give a slight edge to baseball in terms of uh, enjoyment or yourself as a player? Well, I played both there, but I was a better basketball player than I was a baseball player. And that doesn't mean I was any good basketball. I was just better than I was at baseball. And uh, But I thoroughly enjoyed it. My high school years were some of the best of my whole life. And uh, I, I, told our kids, you know, my daughter was a really good high school basketball player. Don't ever forget how great it is to play for your high school team because it doesn't matter how small the level might be, you're still playing for your school. And I always thought that was uh, quite a thrill in that. For sure. What uh, what position or how would you kind of describe uh, your game as a basketball player? <laughs> well, I graduated from high school at about 5'3 and uh, 100 20 pounds so you can imagine what position i played and, um, <laughs> and, and now i'm five five and i weigh about 145 pounds so i still play the same position and i would hardly say i play anymore i'm 62 i need a new artificial hip at some point i'm sure but i still like to play but i don't get to play very much anymore just because my time is such and at my age and at my size, uh, I need the perfect game in which to play. I need somebody to pass it to, somebody good to pass it to so we can score. And almost as important, I need somebody to pass it to me because I think the days are over of me uh, getting in the lane and creating something uh, at 8.62 and 5.5, 145. That's not very easy to do anymore. So a little sounds like a little JJ Redick Ray Allen type combo is uh, your game, I guess. But uh, a little birdie also told me that uh, back in the day you used to play some pickup at Cal Ripken Jr.'s house. Is is that true? Yeah, I, I played a few games there before the gym came along. We used to play, and this was a raging conflict of interest for me. But we used to play at this dingy little. Uh, junior high school gym it was a private school gym up in Baltimore and I played in a whole bunch of games with Cal Ripken Jr which again I shouldn't have done but once I got into it it seemed like it was okay to do and then I played at his gym uh, several times and it was (laughs) one of the coolest things ever I mean imagine having a gym at your house not just a gym a perfect gym with a perfect floor perfect fiberglass boards uh, the best basketballs you can possibly imagine. So I played a few games up there, and that was quite a thrill also. And 
playing on the t- same team as Cal Ripken was uh, quite an experience. Was uh, was he any good as a basketball player as well? Was he still pretty? Yeah, good? he was. He was really good. He, you know, he didn't play in high school. He was a baseball and a soccer player in high school. So so typical of Cal Ripken. He he would arrange it. I could tell you a thousand of these stories, but he would arrange a different game like every night. And every night, he had a different role for himself in the game. Some games, he was the biggest guy on the floor, so he had to play center with his back to the basket. And there were other nights where he had to play a two-guard and get out on the wing and run the floor. He did both equally well. And I'll never forget, <laughs> boy, this is very self-serving. He, uh, he asked me once, he said... Uh, was many years ago he said show me how you do that move that you do so i showed him this move it was a it was a classic little guy's move i if i can't make that move i can't play so i showed him how to do it and a week later he's i play with him again and he's using that move in the game a week later uh it took me like two years to figure out how to perfect that thing and he had it in a week it's just so typical of how athletic he was, how observant he was, how athletic, how analytical he was about everything. And I also remember when, you know, if I was on the other team with him, depending on the night we were playing, if his man, for instance, the guy he was guarding, was late getting down on offense, he would harass me all the way down the court. I'm a foot shorter than him. I weigh 100 pounds less than him, but he just couldn't sit idly by and just wait for his guy to get down the floor. He had to be active for the entire game, so he would just harass me all the way down the floor. I finally looked at him and I said, you know, would you please just leave me alone? You stop trying for one second? And he said no. And that was the end of that. That's phenomenal. I, I would think it'd be pretty hard to top Cal uh, Ripken Jr., but uh, is there any more notable person you've ever played pickup with or that ever happened to show up at those games? Any? Uh, I'm trying to think if you ever could have played with uh, President Obama or anybody like that ever show up. Um, well, I used to play in the summer. I wouldn't say play. I worked out a few times with Brad Davis, who was an NBA player for a long time in Dallas. That was pretty cool. I showed up at a gym once um, in Kansas City, 97, I want to say, and Scott Wedman was in the gym, and it was pickup games and everything else, and I ended up on Scott Wedman's team. And he had just retired from the NBA like two years earlier, and he, he kind of came up to me before the game. I think he recognized that me being the smallest guy on the court, that I might uh, I might have the ball more than most, bringing it up the court, and he kind of said to me, look, I'm not going to guard anybody. I'm not going to get any rebounds. I'm just going to stand out here and shoot. Just want to let you know. So he was still one of the greatest shooters I've ever seen. So I spent the entire day just feeding it to him. We won like nine games in a row. It was it was really fun. But I also played once with Adam Sandler, which was uh, really something. I went to the uh, a place called the Reebok Club with my friend Steve Russian and. In New York, in in Manhattan. And we were just in there. Steve Russian, Sports Illustrated, really good shooter, by the way. He uh, he and I were just shooting around, and in comes Adam Sandler with some other guy. 
And he asked, you guys want to play two-on-two? Because we were the only four guys at the gym. So we played Adam Sandler and this total stranger two-on-two, and we clobbered him like five games in a row. Because, again, Steve Russian is 6'5", and he can shoot it. And the guy who was with Adam Sandler might be the worst player I've ever seen. So we just dominated them for five games, not like it really mattered. And Adam Sandler was pissed after a while that he kept losing. And uh, But we had a really nice chat with him afterwards. I, I think he knew who we were to some degree. I'm not sure. But we had a fun talk with him. And uh, <laughs> I called home afterwards, and our kids were like, you know, like seven and five or something. And I said, you're not going to believe who I met today. And they went like, oh, what, did you get to meet Derek Jeter or something like that? I said, no, I, I met Adam Sandler. I played two-on-two with with Happy Gilmore, and they thought that was like the greatest thing of all time. And for me, it was a really cool thing to play basketball against a movie star, TV star. Yeah, and, and not just play with him. You kicked his butt, too. I, well, <laughs> again, we could have played him 100 times, but we would have won 100 games, given <laughs> how unfair those teams were. Because, again, his, the guy who was with him was a terrible player. For sure. Uh, I, I didn't even know this myself until I uh, actually read your Wikipedia all the way through. And I, I know Wikipedia never lies, obviously. But uh, in 1997, I saw you were actually uh, assigned by Sports Illustrated to, to covering basketball. Is, is that, you know, I guess that was pretty short lived uh, for you? Yeah, it, it was. Was. I was kind of filling in for some people who were busy or sick or something like that. And then we put out a special section every once in a while and they ran out of basketball writers so they asked me if I could help out so uh I did some basketball back then I I enjoyed it It was just for you know just a couple of months but I I I went and did a story on Mark Price great free throw shooter the great shooter for Cleveland I think he ended his career with the Celtics I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him I went to lunch with Kenny Anderson once and talked to him about playing the point. I went to lunch with Kevin Johnson once and talked to him about his career. And I thoroughly enjoyed that because even though those guys were 10,000 times better than I ever was, uh, I enjoyed talking shop with them because I'd like to think on my own tiny level, I, I could understand what they were talking about playing that position and you know, what it took and what was necessary. So I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the short time I did basketball. And uh, I'm glad I kept baseball as my day job. But, you know, moonlighting on basketball for a while was kind of fun. For sure. Were you uh, were you still on the coverage uh, during the playoffs by any chance or any Jordan uh, interaction during those times? No, uh, no. My only Jordan interaction really has been when he played baseball and that was minimal um, and that probably doesn't count, but I, I didn't get to do all the big stuff. I was just filling in here and there. And I wrote the NBA column a few times, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> one, one week, uh, yeah, one week I want to say that Chris Gatling went over eight from the free throw line in, in one game. And so, of course, me loving the numbers, I had to go find the worst offer in the history of basketball from the free throw line in a game. And Will Chamberlain had three over tens, at least he did at the time. Um, and same week, I think it was, I think it was Tim Hardaway. No, I think it was Gary Payton scored thirty points without missing a shot. 
It was like 14 for 14 from the field and two for two from the line. So I went and looked for the, the greatest number of points scored in a game without missing a field goal. And Wilt held that record, too. I think he had three 15 for 15s in his career. So those were the kind of things that stuck with me, um, you know, not just talking to the players, but reading the box scores every day and hopefully finding some pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> For sure. I, I guess that love of uh, cutting out box scores could translate to uh, almost any sport. But until you brought them up, I, I had almost, uh, you know, put the MJ baseball years out of my mind. But I, I guess, did you ever get to uh, actually see him play baseball? Were you ever by any chance uh, around any of that? Yeah, I, I did. And I thought he did, un- in the end, I thought he did unbelievably well. To hit 202, drive in you know, 53 runs, steal 36 bases at double A, having not played, in my opinion, the world's hardest game to play, and take 15 years away from that, come back and play at double A. I honestly thought he would bat 0-50, and he willed himself to hit 202. Just a tribute to his incredible athleticism, but I think more his incredible drive that he wasn't going to fail as a baseball player. And even though the numbers weren't great, I will argue with anyone who tells me that he failed in baseball because he didn't. It was a miracle he did that well. And in the end, he did baseball a great service. For those who think he failed, just showed everyone how hard baseball is to play. That Maybe the greatest athlete in the world at the time, you know, struggled for the most part. That's That's an amazing point, and that is really interesting that you know, the narrative obviously is, is kind of that he had failed, but, you know, you're right. To, to bat over the Mendoza line, to, to steal that many bases when, like you said, he had taken 15 years off and is a professional athlete in a completely different sport. Um, he, obviously, do you think then if he if he had played baseball his whole life and stuck with it, would he have been a, a pretty darn good pro of, you know, if, say, he'd only been a baseball player? Oh, there's no doubt. If he had played baseball from, you know – age 12 and never played basketball or played basketball to make him a better baseball player. I'm a big believer in that. You shouldn't be specializing in any sport when you're 12. You should play them all. If you can, it makes you better at each sport. There's no doubt he would have been a very good baseball player, A, for his athleticism, but B, his competitive nature is like few people I've ever met in my life. He, again, he just decided he was going to beat the game. And even though he didn't, he did way better than anybody thought he would. <laughs> Growing up as a, as a fan of basketball, did you have a favorite team or favorite player? Did you just kind of love the game as a whole? What was kind of uh, your Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Washington, outside of Washington, D.C., in suburban Maryland. So the Washington Bullets were my team. And I grew up watching... You know, Earl Monroe, that rookie season out of Winston-Salem State, it was like, where did this guy come from? That was unbelievable. Before Earl came around, you know, I I watched Pete Maravich play on national television a couple of times, and that was as breathtaking uh, an experience as I've ever had. I've never seen anybody play like that back then, mid-60s. And in the mid-60s, I would also watch, you know, Celtics and the Sixers play every Sunday afternoon on ABC. And then, but once, you know, cable TV, well, once TV came around, I'd watch 
all the Bullets games. So Earl Monroe and those guys were great. Wes Unseld was an amazing player. Um, I, I, I think I enjoyed watching a guy before everyone's time, Archie Clark, um, play as much as anyone. He could cross with both hands like no one I've ever seen. It was really the only move he had, and I never saw anyone that could guard it left-handed or right-handed. Um, and then Kevin Porter came along, another real little guy who could get in the lane against anybody, and that was really fun to watch. So those were the guys that I remember the most growing up, Pete Maravich, Kevin Porter, Archie Clark. And even though two of them aren't the biggest names in the world, those were the guys that kind of stuck with me. Those were my kind of high school years, and um, I kind of patterned some things after those guys. Yeah, no, we all have our, our players that we try to take from, and I think we relate to players that kind of uh, resemble the way that we play a little bit. Uh, what about now? Do you get a chance to, to still watch a decent amount of basketball? And are you are you a Wizards fan still? Or are you just a, a fan of any particular players? Or uh, Well, I've, I've kind of lost track of the Wizards here, I must say. And, uh, yeah, I, I really miss watching Steve Nash play because um, – there weren't too many better than him, uh, especially running the pick and roll. He was uh, like very few I've ever seen. I hope all young players should go watch a tape of him to understand yep. that he he learned to get to the basket by being able to shoot the three. Once he developed that long-range shot, people had to run at him, and that's when he learned to go by everybody. Um I watched Allen Iverson with absolute amazement. I still maintain that crossover with either hand is the single most unstoppable move, not shot. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had the most unstoppable shot in history, but Allen Iverson off the dribble was the most unstoppable uh, move that I've ever seen. So I miss watching him play, but now... I must say I am mesmerized with the way that the Warriors play basketball. They, the ball movement that they have, the spacing that they have, the range that Steph Curry and Klay Thompson specifically have, uh, I've never seen anything like that before. And there is no doubt in my mind that Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of all time. And I'm starting to wonder if Klay Thompson's the second greatest shooter of all time. Granted, they have this great advantage of playing in the three-point era, but the range from which they shoot is like nothing I've ever seen, especially Steph Curry. And to see him float to his left and drift to his right without really always getting his shoulders square to the rim and shooting the way he does uh, from that distance is absolutely magical. I've never seen anything like it. But more than that, I just love the way the Warriors play the game today. Yep, that's a beautiful, beautiful game. Um, analytics, I feel like that's been the word of the month for like 15 years now. What, what are your general thoughts on, in baseball in particular, and then I guess we can move on to basketball a little bit, but watching it up close in, in baseball, how do you think uh, you know it's impacted the game, and, and do you think there are still a lot of blind spots, or have you come around a little more as a believer in that sort of thing? Well, I'm a believer in as many numbers as you can present as long as they make sense and as long as they're applicable. But uh, a lot of things cannot be measured, and yet I think we think too often we can 
we can measure everything. We can put a number on everything, and we simply can't. I know we can't do it in basketball, and I know we can't do it in baseball. When we take the human element out of the game, I think we're making a major mistake, and I think baseball has taken way too much of the human element out. That doesn't mean that some of the sabermetric information we have isn't helpful. It is extremely helpful, and it needs to be examined. But so does the human element. And when we take you know, a player's heart, a player's brain out of the equation, we're making a big mistake. When we take his competitive nature out of the equation, we're making a massive mistake. I think we do that to some degree in basketball. I know we do it in baseball. So I say give me as many numbers as you want, but make sure it's a blend with uh, the eyes and ears of our best coaches, managers, scouts, instructors, because without them and without the human element, uh, either game will be close to being as good as it should be. Well said. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap, too, in, in what you said in basketball. There's a big desire, it seems like, to, to boil everything down to like a single number we can just point to to say this guy's the best in the league and this guy's the second best and, you know, a whole bunch of uh, attempts to quantify defense that don't really have any idea what the game plan is or what coaches are asking of the players. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting time. I, I, I feel like in baseball, too, I, I, one example I was always been curious about that I wanted to ask you, um, you know, it seems like for the last 15 years people – always crush managers for refusing to use their closers in the eighth inning sometimes in non-save situations. Um, I always think, you know, it, it might work for some, and I'm sure analytically there's some logic to it, but there has to still be a reason that, you know, some traditional managers still hold off about concerns about fatigue or psychology. Am, am I totally off base here? Is there still, is that one of the feel elements that you kind of believe in a little more? Right. There has to be a feel for the game. And I think we've lost, a good portion of that in baseball. Without a feel for the game, I don't know how you run the game as a manager. I don't know how you play the game uh, properly without the proper innate feel. And I, it's gotten away from us. I think our best managers still operate. They go into a game with a sabermetric plan that is provided from the front office. And they should have a sabermetric plan. But if things change during the game... The manager has to be able to say, all right, you tell me this is the best reliever for this spot. I'm telling you I'm not taking my starting pitcher out now because he's dealing. And I don't care if the numbers say he's going to come out after five. I'm leaving him in for seven. I think we've gotten away from that. But when we take that away from our managers completely, I think we're doing them a disservice, and I think we're doing the game a disservice. For sure. No, that's great, Doug. Very last one, I'll throw at you if you don't mind, and then I'll get you out of here. I, I know you're such a junkie of the history of the game. Uh, just curious, if I can, you, your top five basketball players of all time. What, what's in with that? Um, well, this is impossible to do. So I'm going to give you my I'm going to give you my top eight basketball players of all time, and I'm not going to give it to you in order because it's too hard. I think Jordan's the greatest player of all time. I'll leave it at that. So, so it's Jordan and LeBron. It's the three centers, Wilt, Russell, and Kareem. That's five. Larry and Magic, who changed the game. That's seven. 
and Oscar Robertson eight, just because as a six five guard averaging a triple double in the fifties, he changed the game. Also, there was nobody like him. He would still be great today, even though he played sixties almost seventy years ago. Those for me are the eight greatest players of all time. And again, that's wildly subjective. I just know watching Jordan that the way he presented himself, the, the competitive nature, the way he just showed up and wanted to tear your throat out every day, he would still get my vote as the greatest player of all time. But the other seven I mentioned are, are right around there somewhere. And I, I, there's some bias there, but those are my eight greatest players ever. That's a great list. Does, does Kobe still make the top ten? Yeah, I think there's a debate, though. At, 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 I've actually asked people this question. If, if it's Kobe, Shaq, and Tim Duncan, let's say, and I'm sure I'm missing somebody, but if they're the three guys to make the top ten, which, are the, which one do you leave out, Shaq, Kobe, or Tim Duncan? I would have Kobe... I would have Kobe in there in the top 10. And I'm not sure what I do with Duncan or Shaq, but one of them doesn't make the top 10. And that's blasphemous, I understand. But somebody's got to go. An impossible decision. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I, I tell everyone I can that you're legitimately one of the most genuine and, and kindest people I've, I've ever met. And I uh, really appreciate you, you taking the time to join us today on the Scout with Brian podcast. Well, my pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you again. Thank you all for listening again to the Scout Brian podcast. We'll talk soon.